lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for being with us today. We've got a really interesting show. I've got Dr. Dana Dorfman. She's got a master's in social work. She's a PhD, and she's a New York City-based psychotherapist with 30 years of experience treating adolescents and parents in her private practice, schools, and agency settings. As a passionate advocate of adolescent mental health, she is a lecturer and consultant for parenting centers, schools, and corporations. Dr. Dorfman is regularly interviewed and quoted in the media on mental health topics and was the co-host of a parenting podcast, Two Moms on the Couch. Dr. Dorfman resides in New York City with her husband, her teenage daughter and son, and their beloved dog. Thank you so much for being with me today, Dr. Dorfman. Hi, Lee. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I think, you know, that I know that you work a lot with adolescents and with anxiety and in today's day and age we we live in such an uncertain world and there's so much fear that exists not only with that with the adolescents with all of us and i think that you know we certainly it's a great time to be talking about this Yes, it is. It's a, anxiety is all around us and stress is all around us. So it does seem to be top of mind for many of us. Well, you know, and, and you wrote a book, When Worry Works, How to Harness Your Parenting Stress and Guide Your Teen to Success. And I can tell you, I am so just happy that my I don't have teenagers anymore. Mine have grown up. I mean, because nothing was harder than, at first I thought nothing was harder. I had twins and having two three-year-olds. But then when I had teenagers, I decided right away, oh, two teenagers, definitely harder. And it's just, it seems like it's the, the best, the hardest job I've ever done. Yes, it is. Well, parenting is a very hard job, as we all know. And um, and being an adolescent is, an, is a hard part of life. And so parenting an adolescent is innately that difficult as well. Well, what do you feel like, because we've all, we've all been a teenager and we all understand when we reflect back, but what do you think anxiety looks like for adolescents today? Well, anxiety can look very different in adolescence than what we commonly consider to be anxiety. A lot of times we think about anxiety as sort of shaking in your boots or being, you know, observably nervous. And a lot of times anxiety can manifest in anger, irritability, annoyance, withdrawal that sometimes what we observe on the surface with our kids, we don't necessarily realize that anxiety is what is operating beneath the surface. Well, you know, when you say beneath the surface, you mean certainly when you walk in a room and someone is very anxious, they've got their shoulders up around their ears and the body language is telling you that they're anxious. But what else can you look for as a parent 
to pick up on that anxiety? As a parent, I think that this is every parent's um, kind of, not necessarily nightmare, but something that all parents want to know. I think that anytime there is a dramatic shift or a significant shift in a teenager's overall functioning, if um, they had previously been, if they had typically been social and then suddenly become somewhat withdrawn, Absolutely. If there is any substance abuse, that is an indicator that there is more anxiety operating than perhaps we realize. If there are significant changes in grades or overall functioning, that's an indication. And absolutely, um, anxiety also coexists with many other um, mental health issues. So a lot of times when a teenager has Excuse me. <clears throat> when, when a teenager has been anxious for a long time, they may also become depressed. So it can also coincide with other um, behaviors or sort of the observable emotional states as well. Well, and one thing I've seen in my practice with teenagers that have ADHD, usually if you have cognitive dysregulation, you're going to have some emotional dysregulation. And I've seen that a lot. And that's and it makes sense to me. If you go to, to school and, and you see, I have to work three times harder than the other people. Well, I don't know if that would make me anxious or depressed or both. Yes, there are absolutely kind of cognitive factors that contribute to or exacerbate anxiety. And there are many environmental factors. And a large part of my book is actually about how parents are also very anxious unknowingly, and then they unknowingly or inadvertently uh, transfer this anxiety to their kids. And most of us um, are well-intended. We want the best for, for our kids. We love them. We are trying our hardest. And, um, and so I am not in the business of blaming parents. But I do think that parenting is incredibly stressful. This is the most anxious generation of, um, of parents than any previous generation and uh, for a variety of reasons. And so parents are feeling tremendous pressure themselves, not only in their lives that are unrelated to parenting, but also related to parenting. And we know that anxiety is one of the most contagious emotions of any emotion. I oftentimes say it's worse than COVID um, and, more, and more contagious than COVID. So if a parent is feeling um, anxious and not realizing it or is unaware of it or not managing it in an effective way, they are going to then um, transfer that onto the adolescent. Well, you know, and I honestly believe kids pick up everything. They Parents will say, oh, they don't really know. I'm like, yeah, I think they do really know. Right. Kids mm -hmm. pick up everything. They, they don't have, they don't miss a beat. They've got their, their intuition is so strong and they haven't learned yet that to ignore it. They accept it for what it is. So it's almost like when you've got anxiety and in, in the brain, anxiety is, Genetic, brainwaves are genetic, just like how tall you are or what color eyes you have. So when you've got that genetics going, I find it's difficult to 
just focus on the child. Yes, and and I guess the genetic or temperamental um, or biologic predisposition is also influenced by the world around them. So, um, so the more aware we can be of also how our kids are interpreting our behavior. Not only are they um, not immune to it, and and as you say, that they're so intuitive, they are keeping close eye on us. Even when they feign disinterest, they're actually watching us very closely, sometimes even to criticize us, but they're watching the adults around them. And, um, and so we want for, for kids to, um, to be able to be as aware as they can to be able to communicate that to parents and also for parents to figure out ways to effectively communicate that to their kids. Well, let's say you're a parent and, and you think that your child may be a little anxious, but you're not sure. What do you advise parents to do? It's a great question, actually, because I think that oftentimes, you know, anxiety gets a bad rap and it is an integral part of being um, alive. We all have anxiety um, and we all need anxiety. It's part of our survival mechanism to ensure that we can anticipate threats in our environment and keep ourselves safe. And um, and there are some helpful helpful aspects of anxiety. However, when we talk about it, and certainly the way that it has been spoken about, when we say, if I say, you know, to somebody like, oh, you're anxious, a lot of times people will interpret that as an insult, a criticism, or maybe even, um, yeah, or an insult or a criticism. And so I think that it is always helpful to approach teenagers with open-ended questions rather than saying, you know, are you anxious to say even like, you know, you seem you seem like different lately or it just seems like I noticed that, you know, you're you're typically out with your friends on the weekends and lately you've been home a lot or um, or you don't seem to be eating as much as you used to or sleeping as much. And I'm concerned. And so, like, is there something going on, something that is open ended, that's not a yes or no. And also, anytime a parent can approach a teenager with from an, from a place of concern by verbalizing the concern as opposed to the blame or an accusation or a label, the more likely they are that the teenager is going to avail them to um, to opening up. Well, and I think you made a very good point in that. There's so much shame and stigma associated with mental health issues. And the first thing I do at the Brain Performance Center is I do a, a consultation. And it ended up using my observations to write my book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On. People would come in and I would listen and I would say, wow, I, I think there's some anxiety going on. Oh, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or I, th- I think there's some depression going on. And boy, those eyes would hit the floor looking down. Oh, no, 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 I'm fine. And, you know, I wanted so bad to say, and I did say, it is okay to not be okay. And we have to recognize that and and say, I'm not okay and get help. That's kind of where it all starts. 
And those adolescents, they're going through so many changes. It's probably 50 times harder for them at that stage in their life to say, I need I need some help. I'm feeling down. I'm feeling left down. I'm feeling like I don't have any friends. That's hard to do. Ah, it is. It is so hard to do. I think it's even hard for adults to do. A lot of times we have all different ways to protect ourselves or not have to kind of um, face face um, painful experiences or painful feelings. That's what defense mechanisms are all about. And um, and I think that the more that I talk about this a lot. Um, with patients and also um, just in general, I think that there is so much value to verbalizing some of your own vulnerabilities as a parent and kind of we, we perceive anxiety as a vulnerability or we perceive depression as a vulnerability. And the more that we can talk about just kind of in the normal course of daily life, kind of like, you know, I've been kind of down lately. I'm, I'm still capable of taking care of you and, you know, I don't want you to worry, but it's just like I, I felt less confident today at work than I typically do. So that it's also kind of creating an environment where vulnerability is tolerated, is normalized, and um, so that kids also see that they, that not, you know, having a bad day or feeling insecure or feeling less confident is is part of being alive. It's not just, you know, that that parents have it all together or adults have it all together and um, and don't experience these things. So I think it's so helpful to integrate it into daily life in some way. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, you don't have to pour your heart out to your kid, but even sort of verbalizing feelings of frustration. I wanted to get something done. I was just so frustrated that I wasn't able to do it. It also is modeling how to label, to talk about feelings that are less comfortable. Well, and I think that we all learn from the behavior that we see modeled. And I've had, I have adults that say, you know, I have a real hard time expressing myself emotionally because with my family, because I didn't see that in my house. You know, growing up, my parents never argued in front of us. We didn't even know they argued. And, you know, and and I'm sure the intent behind that was was loving and wanting to thinking that there needs to be some protection of the kids. But in reality, you're really not showing real life because it doesn't matter who you are, how much money you have, how gifted and talented you are. You're going to have days of anxiety or depression or just being, you know, I call it just being not. No inner peace. Yes, I often I talk with my own kids a lot about that. Emotions are a little bit like weather that like it can never be sunny all of the time. And it can there can be moments of cloudiness and then sort of and then the, you know, the day the weather can change. I mean, I know I'm in New York and you're in Texas, so maybe there are differences and there must be weather differences. But overall, I think that it is, it's a helpful way to also um, not only normalize, can't quite think of the word that I want to say, but like um, 
to present the continuum of normal, like human experiences where we feel sort of down or we have a cloudy moment and then something else could kind of bring the sun out or there are days when it rains all day. Sometimes there are hurricanes, you know, and this is the way we experience, everybody experiences emotions to some degree. We all have emotions. They are all operating all of the time. Whether or not we're aware of them or not is something else. But um, but it is a universal human experience. Well, and I always say negative thoughts create negative feelings. Negative feelings create negative behavior. It all starts with what's going on in your head. And that's something that, you know, a 12, 13-year-old, that's hard for them to figure out all on their own that needs that needs some coaching it needs a a parent or a sibling an older sibling to say hey what are you thinking right now you don't seem very happy with yourself what are you thinking right now and a lot of times it's i professionally done i think that that adds an extra advantage but if you see somebody in your family that you feel like is is struggling. Do you encourage people to interact or do you encourage them to get professional help right away? I think it depends. It's hard to say kind of um, very generally. I do think that anytime there are significant changes in eating, sleeping, sort of finding joy in activities that somebody typically finds joy in. Absolutely, if somebody is expressing any kind of suicidal ideation, um, that would be grounds to get help immediately. Um, And I encourage parents, actually, I know that this isn't tremendously uncomfortable, but given the rising suicide rates and given what we understand about suicide prevention and and the intense feelings of loneliness of many people, kind of prior to suicide attempts, I really encourage parents that if that is something, while we we don't like the topic, it's certainly important to bring up. And we are never planting that um, idea into a kid's head. If we're saying, if we're asking a teenager about it, it's not as if we're suggesting it or giving them ideas or something like that. Kids are pretty um, aware of this. Um, in current days. Well, I think you make a great point that we've got to be willing to talk about things and that's hard to do. And you come home after a hard day at work and that's the last thing you want to do is to start that conversation with your kid or to open yourself up to vulnerability. It is very hard to do. And sometimes I think that we will put it off. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow will be a better day. You know, and, and there's no, if not now, when? Yes. It, and and I'm, I'm world's biggest procrastinator, so I can, I can talk a good game, but I'd love to put off anything, you know. Um, but I do think that um, if we can also, sort of what I was describing before, the idea of like keeping emotions as an integral part of daily conversation or family life also makes it a less big deal. So like if you're acknowledging in some way, like oh, you seem a little bit down, blum, you know, um, different, 
it's also it's it's it doesn't sound like it's come out of the blue. It's sort of um, part of what we're accustomed to. And I really encourage adults and parents to kind of tune into their own emotions as much as they can and figure out ways that they can comfortably communicate them um, to others, even to others or even to themselves. The better equipped we are to understand what's going on inside of us, which can be really confusing and really amorphous, the more, um, you know, the more that we can model that, the more that we can help kids, the easier it is after a long day of work to be able to say, you know, to bring up something because it's sort of part of the norm. Well, and, and you make a good point. It's got to become part of the norm. It's it's not a, a special event. It's not, you know, this horrible thing. It's just it happens and we talk about it and we try to work through it. And I think that every every parent wants that. It's just, as you mentioned, there's a lot of anxiety around being a parent and you want the best you want the absolute best. You don't want your kids to go through what you went through. And is that where you think the parenting worries stem from? I think so. I think that's definitely um, part of it. And if you think about sort of the purpose of anxiety is to protect us and to prepare us for the future. And if you think about like the central roles of or the central tasks of parenting are actually to protect our young and to prepare them for the future. So it does stand to reason that anxiety would be an integral part of parenting itself. And then when you add to it sort of the um, all of the stressors that are going on in this current generation, which I am don't want to malign, um, well, I don't want to malign technology because technology is really helpful. That's how you and I are even able to talk. Um, and there's there are great benefits to technology. But given the accelerated rate of ways that we can get information, we are all inundated with a lot of anxiety-producing um, material nonstop and our brains are not equipped or wired to be able to keep up with this rapid acceleration and teenage brains are certainly not equipped to do so. So it's sort of like um, putting these excessive demands on um, adult brains and adolescent brains. So I think that that is a um, one of the big factors that has also influenced um this generation of parents. The other thing is that, you know, many generations, many, many parents of this generation also have, um, are having children later and many parents have um, had more success or progress in their own careers or professional lives. And so oftentimes they approach parenting a little bit like a new profession, you know, that there's, um, and they, they try to access as much information as they can, which I think is wonderful. It also, in some ways, people like me are also intensifying the anxiety because it, it, it can often be interpreted as there's a right way, there's a wrong way. This is the right way to be a parent. This is the best way to be a parent. And so parents feel a lot of pressure about their role as parent and doing it right. Um, 
Well, I think and there that, are many other factors too. You know. I think, you know, you make a good point. We've got a couple of minutes left before we go to break. And when we're talking about technology, you know, social media keeps popping in my brain because mm-hmm. social media has turned us into a comparative society. And, you know, when you compare, you got a winner and you got a loser. And particularly with adolescents, they're, they'll get online and they'll see, oh, look at that dress or look at that family vacation. We've never had a family vacation like that. Or, or look at that car for guys, teenage guys. And maybe it's more about the car than with the girls. Maybe it's more about the dress and the, but that's something real quickly. Tell me what your thoughts are on social media. I think that social media is a complicated web and that um, and I think that also social media oftentimes perpetuates that like highly perfectionistic, as you were describing, sort of that competitive edge. And it also because it's so highly curated, people are posting themselves at their best or um, in their happiest moments. So it also then serves to not normalize sadness not feeling good, not looking your best. And so that also perpetuates some of the um, the loneliness that kids feel when they're feeling, um, you know, some of these vulnerable feelings. Well, I think you made some really good points. And, and it's something that as a kid growing up, I didn't have social media and it was so much easier. I, d- I didn't have access to information. That was a lot harder to have to go to the library to get references, then now, you know, kids can get on their phone and go to Google Scholar and find any reference they want. So there's, there's good and bad associated with it. But I think that parents need to be aware that social media can contribute to anxiety. And at just being aware, balance how much time your kids look at social media. We're going to take a break, but stay with us. We'll be back after these messages. need larger parking spaces? The owners of the Togla Rest Stop in southeastern China think so. They have created a number of parking spaces that are 50% larger, designated for female drivers, with the international symbol for women and outlined in pink. When asked by a Chinese newspaper why they felt the need to enlarge the parking spaces for women drivers, a lot manager explained that they observed female drivers having a difficult time parking, which slowed down the order of traffic. I admit I'm a bit of a baby bummel or bungler when it comes to parking, but is this really necessary? Actually, I was complimented on my parking the other day. Someone left a note that said, Parking? Fine. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Well, thanks for staying with us. You know, during the first part of the show, we talked about how how anxious it can be to be a parent and where parents, what they want the best for their kids and how they worry about 
everything that comes into play. Some of that comes from their own old patterns. But how do you break those old patterns? It is really hard. Um, However, the first step is to be aware. The more aware we can be of either our emotions or our thoughts, which sounds much easier than it is, because when we are thinking, we automatically think that whatever it is that's going on, and and it's not even a conscious process per se, that we just believe that our thoughts are facts. So if we have a perception in our minds, that is a fact, or that is a truth. And a lot of times, as you were even talking about before, some of the negative or anxious thoughts can lead us astray. They actually are sort of like a negative voice in our head that thinks that it is preparing us for some kind of potential danger in the future. But it's actually, uh, you may even hear the siren (laughs) in the background, I'm not sure. But, um, But it's actually causing us more distress and it's, and, and, and wreaking havoc on our emotions and our behaviors. So the first thing is to be aware of either when you're feeling anxious or what behaviors you typically engage in that that um, indicate to you like, ah, you know what, I must be nervous. I have that feeling in my stomach. Or um, I know that whenever I'm talking very quickly, that's usually an indication that I'm anxious. Or um, You know, so that the more aware we can be, the more control we can have over it. That you make a good point there, because we can't be afraid of it. We have to own it. And when we can do that, then we can then we we're in control and we can change it. So in what ways can parents understand their own parent anxiety reaction type? How do they react to things? Well, what I did was what I was noticing, I, I, um, my book is a lot about achievement anxiety, the many pressures that kids feel around achievement and the many stresses that parents feel around achievement. And, um, and I'm certainly a proponent of achievement, but I see that there is so much anxiety around um, certainly productivity, but also participation and high grades and you know, a lot of different pressures. And so um, I was noticing that there were certain, there were different thematic ways that parents were managing their own anxieties. There were certain behaviors that many parents that I was working with were um, engaging in. And depending on sort of their history, their personality, their, their past experiences, their biology, that these that um, there were these thematic ways. And so I created eight different archetypes, which I call PART, which is an acronym for Parent Anxiety Reaction Types. And each of these types is sort of a way that parents act toward their children where they might not necessarily realize that anxiety is operating. So there are clairvoyance and sculptors, and I tried to make them kind of fun, crowd pleasers, replicators, correctors. And there's actually even a quiz on my on my website, which parents can take so that they could even see sort of what category they fall into or what their particular type is. And then there are upsides to every type. There are perks. That's why 
parents are doing what they're doing. And then I say there are pitfalls, things that they should look out for. And oftentimes parents can be triggered by certain things. For example, if, um, you know, if a parent is feeling um, anxious about their own ambitions or their own um, success, that they may, they may um, impose that or project it onto their, their teenager thinking that they are helping the teenager, but are actually more, they are reacting more to their own anxiety and, and less, they are less able to be responsive to the teenager who is in front of them. So um, it's kind of a, I think that it's a, a fun and it has been very helpful for parents to even see, ah, oh, so when I'm doing this, there's actually anxiety operating too. And it doesn't mean one way is more right or more wrong or good or bad. It just means we all have anxiety and let's see how ours um, shows up. So do you often, with people with anxiety, I oftentimes will try to get them to use their breathing as a way to, to calm themselves down. And it's so interesting because focusing on your breath is hard. It really is. People will come in, they'll say, well, you know, I was having a panic attack and I started breathing and it didn't work. And I'm like, well, was that the first time that you did it? Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's why it didn't work. You have to uh -huh. practice. You have to learn how to take those slow, deep breaths. And, you know, we're all looking for something that we can just keep in our pocket and pull it out when we need it. I don't know of anything. Do you? something that is like a technique or something that you yeah. can um, pull out of your pocket. I think that I often think of it um, the way that an athlete operates, that there are, you think about like a professional tennis player, they are not going to be practicing their swing or trying out a new swing on the day of the tournament. They're going to be practicing and practicing and practicing under much lower stakes, um, uh, you know, times so that almost like they're developing a muscle memory. And so if you can start to examine your anxiety, not in the heat of the moment, but really in either like after the fact or, or um, even thinking about the way that you have operated in the past, then you can start to develop very individualized techniques for yourself. For example, if you're somebody who, when you're anxious, you become very self-critical and the voice inside your head is like, I'm never going to, um, you know, be able to pass this test or I'm never going to be able to be clear on this podcast. That is not going to help me. And so being aware, ah, when I'm anxious, I become more self-critical. So I even start to tune into those thoughts as I'm having them and then challenge them, even saying like, wait a second here, what is the, what is the reality and what are my fears? That's a fear-based thought. It isn't necessarily reality. I may believe it to be true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is. It means that in that physiological state of anxiety, I'm having a whole bunch of thoughts, which are anxiety-fueled thoughts. They are not reliable. Well, and I think when you can identify something as not reliable, uh, automatically you need to, okay, I need to stop. I need to think about that. I need to think yep. through that. 
And I think that your point on being aware and don't wait until you're caught up in the moment, because when you're in the moment, it, they're not it's not going to serve you as well as if you try to think through it when you're not in the moment. Exactly. And I think that the better that you can know yourself, the better you can fine tune your techniques to work for you. Like, for example, I have very bad time management and I'm always running late. And then I'm always in or oftentimes, not always in a tizzy, you know, before I'm about to leave the house. And if I were to, I don't know why I'm not learning for myself, but I would, I oftentimes say to myself, you don't like this feeling. This makes you more anxious when you're racing to the subway to get to work. Is there something that you can do, Dana, to help yourself be able to um, be better prepared? So, you know, getting your bag ready the night before, whatever kind of, they seem like basic kinds of techniques, but those are all techniques that actually mitigate anxiety. Then I'm not scrambling, looking for my cell phone and my keys as I'm, you know, um, leaving the house and I'm already five minutes late. So the more that we can know, a lot of times too, I talk to people about, or I think about it a lot about, you know, those people who get to the airport long or way in advance. And then there are people who, you know, cut it much more closely and knowing kind of what your particular style is, is also a way that you are managing your anxiety. It's basically saying, like, I know that I can't, you know, be running running through, um, you know, whatever, the lines on, on TSA because I'm fearful I'm going to miss my flight. I know that if I arrive early, then I'm likely to mitigate my anxiety. And so just knowing sort of certain stylistic things about what makes you anxious, what helps you manage the anxiety. Um, and the more that you can fine tune that, the more you can manage it. So being prepared, being prepared for awesome. your anxiety. Uh, yes, yes, being prepared for your anxiety and doing some self-reflection, as I said, like really thinking about it in a non-judgmental, not critical way. like. There's, we, we need anxiety. As I said, we all have it. We, as long as we are alive, we, we are going to have it. And there are ways that it can be really helpful in harnessing, like if we can harness it and direct it in a way that will be useful for us, we're going to be much better off. Like, um, you know, it, it helps us before we're about to, I don't run races, but if I were to run a race, having your heart pound a little bit faster and having your focus be much more myopic than it had been before and um, and having all of your blood go to your extremities to help you run faster are all useful. That's, that's a way that anxiety is actually working to your benefit. Um, it helps us be more focused. It helps to mobilize us. I know that if I'm going to, you know, um, that I have a plane to catch, I'm going to then be more focused on getting myself together, which that little bit of anxiety is actually helpful for me to ensure that I'm going to use it in a productive and constructive way. Well, and we all have anxiety. And I know there are some people that use, they've mastered it. They can use it when they need it. They can pull it out and 
use it to get themselves in a where they need to be. I mean, if you if you compete professionally, you've got to be on your toes. You can't be. Oh, I'm going to chill right now. I'm going to, you know, have a take a break. You've got to be on your toes. So mm-hmm. how to master it is something that I think everybody wants to learn how to do. And when I think about mastering any skill, I think about my values, my core values, because I have found if I lean into my core values, that gives me strength. Yes, and it gives you direction, especially when you're feeling anxious. We know that when the more anxious we are, the the less equipped we are. It's almost neurologically impossible to think clearly while we're in a state of anxiety or while we're worrying or, or feeling highly stressed. And so um, if we have identified sort of the three or four fundamental values, the things that are most important to us, that we want to be in the driver's seat of our lives and do that in a time, the identification process, if we can do that in a time when we're not highly anxious, then when we are anxious, we can pull out. I know that this is what's most important to me, and I'm going to put that in the driver's seat of this decision so that it overrides in some way my anxiety. And um, I do outline that in my book as well. I have uh, several exercises that people can do to even identify the values that are most fundamental or core to them. And, um, And I think that that can be very helpful when we are in the throes of having to make a parenting decision, anything, you know, large, like, I don't know what school to send my child to or something even small, like, I don't know if I should allow them to go out tonight. And if we can um, know what is most important to us, then we can integrate that into our decision and feel like our values are really what are driving us, not our anxiety. Well, you mentioned that you have some exercises in your book. Could you share one of those exercises with our listeners? Sure. That one of the exercises is that I give a list of values, and um, and I encourage people to really think about you know a list of values. Most of us value most of the things on the list. You know that it's anything from loyalty to responsibility to you know um, relationships. And however, there are usually a few things that really kind of um, kind of stand true or really um, knowing ourselves that they sort of are in our in our core. My grandmother would have said in your kishkas, like in the in the depths of your soul, that really are the things that are most important. For example, I know one thing that's very important to me, maybe unsurprisingly because I'm a therapist, is self-awareness and emotional awareness. And so a lot of times when I'm in the throes of having to make a decision with my kids, for example, my son was trying to make the decision. Uh, he's a junior in high school. He was trying to decide if he should take the standardized test or not, because now a lot of schools are test optional. And um, and he was able to articulate kind of how he felt about it, what it what was most important to him. And and from that, we were able to make a very good decision about um kind of how we could integrate his emotional awareness into his decision-making. You know, he knows himself well. He knows that he is like 
stretched very thin. He, he is already very highly scheduled and he felt like if he were going to take the test, it would require many, many extra hours of studying, which he didn't necessarily have in his um, life. And he, that he values balance and that he needs to be able to socialize and see his friends, which I agree. And he also needs time to do his current homework and he needs time to rest and he needs time to play basketball. And so, um, And so with that, given that his emotional awareness and self-awareness is so important to us, then then it became a much more clear decision. Um, So identifying your values, and then oftentimes if we can identify our anxieties, what is it that we're afraid of? You know, oh my God, if he doesn't take this test, then he's never going to get into a college and then his whole life is going to, you know, whatever, never, he'll never be successful, whatever. And so the more that we can identify first our values, then our anxieties, sometimes even following our anxieties, what is the thing that we are most afraid of? What is the worst thing that can happen? And then we also challenge that. Well, how likely is that that the worst thing that we are imagining is going to happen will actually happen? Because when we're anxious and thinking in an anxious way, we catastrophize. That's one of the ways that our, like, thinking patterns um, manifest. And, and then once we've challenged our anxious thoughts, then we integrate the values into the decision that we're trying to make and have that be kind of the dictating factor. So it's identifying your values, identifying your anxieties, challenging your anxieties, and then integrating it uh, into a, integrating them both into your ultimate decision. That's a massive oversimplification of what is outlined in the book, but um, but that gives some some basic steps. Well, thank you for sharing those because a lot of times if we you know if we just take the first step on our own, that that'll lead us to another step that works for us because nothing works for everybody. That's for sure. We've talked a little bit about the book, but we haven't really talked a lot. What do you feel like is the biggest takeaway from the book? Probably the the biggest takeaway is that we all have anxiety, that anxiety is okay and can be helpful. And then there are times when it can tip the scales and be harmful. And so the more aware we can be of when when our anxiety is operating, how our anxiety operates, the better equipped we are to harness it in a way that will be helpful to our teenagers. So we want to be less reactive to our anxiety and more responsive to our teenagers because that's what we all want. We all want to be um, helpful to them. And so when we can um, extract our anxiety from the equation or at least know when it's operating, we can have more control over it. Oh, that's really that's a real good summary because everything you've said is very very useful. And if our listeners remember, you know, a couple of things out of out of what you said, that gives them something to build on and, and something to work on. You know, we've talked about it, a lot about anxiety, but gosh, there's so much more going on in the teenage world. We've got about six or seven minutes left, and just to think about because the choices and the options that are available to teenagers today weren't there, you know, 30 years ago. The, what do you think is the biggest 
stressor on teenagers today? Is it sex? Is it drug? It, drugs? Is it just the stress of everyday life? Is it social media? What do you think it is? It's it's hard to say. I mean, I think I think of course I think we would love to have one or two things to like pin our our um, our blame on, but I think that probably loneliness is one of the biggest factors. And I think that all of these things, like social media, like technology, like uh, a global pandemic, like academic pressures, all of that contribute to a feeling of loneliness. And we are social creatures. We need to feel connected. We need to feel emotionally understood. We need to feel validated. We need to feel like we matter. And I think that um, when we are isolated or disconnected, or we don't have as much um, kind of interpersonal interaction, I think that that fuels that sense of loneliness, which then um, leads to a whole series of other problems. So I don't think that I think that all of these things like, you know, um, whatever, drugs and, and things like that all originate, though, from these deeper feelings of loneliness and feeling alone in the world and misunderstood. I think you hit the nail on the head. I can't tell you. And, and it's not just adolescents. It's it's adults will say, you yeah. know, I just don't have any friends. I don't have anybody that I can just pick up the phone and call and say, hey, come come take a walk with me or come go have a cup of coffee with me. And it gets harder because as we get as adults, we have more responsibility. We have more things that we have to, to take care of. But that loneliness and, and I think the pandemic really put a lot of people into a state of extreme loneliness. I mean, we, you couldn't go to school. You couldn't go to church. Yeah. You couldn't do. You couldn't go see your grandparents because uh -huh. of the threats. And I see a lot of people still. We turn so insular during that time, and I think some we get stuck there. That's where we. That's where we were told it was safe to go. And of yeah. course, we want to be yeah. safe. And you know, we get stuck there, and we think that we're taking care of ourselves, and we're not. Yeah, and the inertia kind of sets in then, and so we, um, and so it makes it that much harder to leave the house. Or I know even for me, I used to go to my office every day. I used to see, you know, many patients a day. And once I started seeing patients virtually, then it makes it harder. Like it's easier to just stay home. It's easier to see patients virtually, but. But I do think that, and sometimes it can be helpful, but I do think that um, there have been many downsides to to my staying home. But I know that that, I mean, I do go into the office, but not as much as I used to. And so I think that it takes that extra effort to, to uh, push ourselves to, you know, to leave, to interact. It's just oftentimes easier not to. And that is, um, and once we give into that, it perpetuates a cycle of, of loneliness and disconnection and makes us feel more 
uh, different in a lot of ways. You know, we're, if, if we don't know that other people feel the same way that we do and people that we care about feel the same way that we do or have experienced the same thing, then that intensifies those feelings of loneliness. Well, I think we picked a great subject to, to wind the show down on because that when you don't have a sense of community, you don't have a, a place that you feel like you really belong. You don't have that feeling of trust. Oh, I'm going to go to the gym where, where there's other people that I know that I know I can be safe working out around because, you know, COVID, we certainly looked at germs and sweat and everything a lot differently than we than we did before so i think in the last couple of minutes that we have when you think when you talk about sense of community or when you think about sense of community what comes to mind i think that um human beings have a need to belong that we need to feel a sense of belonging to something that we not only have um our our individual psychologies, but that we also share something with other human beings. And so I think that when there is a sense of community, we also feel a sense of emotional safety and physical safety. And, um, and I think it also allows for us to have multiple um, relationships because no one person or parents can't satisfy all of a kid's needs. And so to have other people in the world who are trusted, who are trusted and helpful and supportive actually um, is also very beneficial to the, like the emerging brain of the teenager. Well, you know, that that's a great point to end on. Thank you so much for Dr. Dorfman for being with us today and, helping parents and and hopefully even a few teenagers, adolescents to think about with anxiety, you really, you need to get to know your anxiety. You need to get comfortable with it because then you can control it. It won't control you. I can't thank you enough for your time today. It's been so much fun having you on the show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you as well. Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com.